Thank you, team. You guys can go ahead and be seated. It's good to see you and welcome you to Crossroads Church. I mean, isn't this the most Colorado thing ever? Snow on the weekend of Halloween. Uh, if you're from Texas or California, that's just the way it goes around here. Uh, you can just write it down. It's going to happen every single year. But here we are, and I am glad uh, to see you. Uh, we're partying upstairs with you know, candy and Halloween and all of that kind of stuff. And so far, my favorite costume is Grant's. I don't know if you noticed when he came out earlier, but he is uh, dressed as Maverick from Top Gun, which last week I professed that my favorite actor is Tom Cruise and my favorite role is Tom Cruise playing Tom Cruise. And so Top Gun's like at the top of the list. So you wanna know how to get into the senior pastor's heart? You just dress up as, as Maverick and I'm right there. If you're wondering like what I'm dressed up as, I'm dressed up as Pastor Chris today. Um, if you've seen him, uh, you, know, you, get, you know why. And so uh, about a decade ago, uh, people around Crossroads mistaken us all the time for each other. And so we thought one Halloween, it would be really cool to dress up as twins. And here we are a decade later, and we didn't even plan it. We just look alike today. And so uh, that's who I am dressed up as today. Uh, if you are new with us, I want to welcome you. Uh, to Crossroads. My name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor. And over the course of this hour or so together, um, as we worship together, our deep hope is that you would experience God and that you get a chance to experience his people as we move through this hour of opening God's word, as we sing together, as we really bring praise to Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Today we are starting uh, a brand new sermon series that we're calling Faith Misunderstood, where we're looking at these common ways that we often approach and relate to God. Now, my oldest son, uh, my oldest child, uh, his name is Theodore Rex. That's his full name. And um, obviously when he was a kid, uh, it came, uh, naming the child Theodore Rex comes with like one of the coolest nicknames of all time, right? T-Rex. And so people, when he was little, they just love that we call him T-Rex, and particularly because it made buying gifts like so easy. So like every Christmas and Derry's birthday, he would just get tons and tons of dinosaur stuff. And when Theo was about three years old on Christmas, or he was three years old, during Christmas, he received this dinosaur flashlight. And it was a pretty cool flashlight. You'd hit the button and the mouth would open up and it would growl and go, Rawr! right? And light would shine through for like five seconds. The mouth would close and the light would turn off. And uh, he just loved this little flashlight. Well, three-year-old Theo, um, right around this time, was really starting to have trouble, like you know, little kids are prone to do, with um, sleeping at night because of the darkness in his room. He had a brand new brother. We moved him into a new room, and we were experiencing like these sleepless nights because Theo was constantly up in the middle of the night because he was scared of the dark. And so I had this great idea as a parent. I'm just going to give him his flashlight during the night so that he can see. Now, all of us who are parents, like we make decisions in our life, and oftentimes, if you're anything like me, you look back on them and you think, man, that was a terrible decision. Well, this was one of those, okay? Because instead of him waking us up in the middle of the night, what we would hear constantly through the night was, Rawr! and then the light, you know, the, the hallway would light up for a few seconds, and then it would go dark. And then a few moments later, we'd hear, Rawr! and the hallway would light up again, and a few seconds later, it would go dark. And so for Sarah and I, there was like all kinds of just like sleepless nights because of this dinosaur flashlight. Now, I share that story with you because I think for many of us, the way we relate to God, the way that we relate to God is a lot like that. That we start our faith journey with great expectations. We long to see God in our lives, but oftentimes it feels like someone gave us a flashlight and it only illuminates long enough to, for us to just see like through the shadows for a few seconds. 
that it never gives us really enough time to see, it never gives us enough time to, to view clearly, it never gives us really enough time to, to take in the experience that Christianity is, is meant to be. And so for many of us, we, we live our lives, our faith journey lives through these shadows, that we live through the shadows of our lives. And, and we wrestle to relate to God in ways that leave us, well, if we were honest, it leaves us a little bit discouraged maybe even a bit frustrated or disappointed. And that's what this series is really all about. It's about how we relate to God when we only partially see who he is and ultimately how we overcome that. And so that's where we're going to go over these next couple of weeks together. And, and I just want to, like, at the beginning of this sermon series, just kind of paint really the four most common ways that we approach God. And really, this is going to serve as an outline for our time together over these next few weeks. But one of the most popular ways or one of the most common ways that we relate to God is as a genie in a bottle. And this approach is exactly what it sounds like, that we see God as this genie, we rub the bottle, and, and we think as we rub the bottle that he will kind of miraculously appear in the smoke and that he will give us the desires of our hearts. That ultimately, when it, when it comes to God, this is all about receiving God's blessings, it's all about receiving God's gifts, and when it comes to God himself, it's a little bit like, eh, maybe, genie in a bottle. The second approach that we're going to look at is called the command giver. We've called it the command giver. And this approach is really steeped in a system of performance based around obedience. And what we say in this approach, the way that we live our lives in this approach as we relate to God is that if I am good, that is if I follow the law and do everything that's commanded of me, then God loves me, he favors me, and I will be blessed by him. And consequently, if I'm bad, that is I don't follow the law, then God does not love me, he won't favor me, and ultimately curses will come in my life. That is the command giver. We're also gonna look at what we would call the principle maker. The principle maker approach really kind of strips back the, the majestic and the awe of, of God and really sums up the entire faith journey like this, where we take this book and we search it for its principles and we take these principles and we think that these principles will ultimately lead to controllable outcomes in our life that will lead us to living a good life. And so we make our faith journey nothing more than our relationship to God is just searching for principles so that our life might be better. The final approach is what we're gonna call the incapable God approach. And this approach believes that God needs me to accomplish things for him. And consequently, when it comes to this approach, the most significant life that you can live is in accomplishing great things for God. And so, what happens when you don't? In this, in this approach, what happens when, you, when you're like most of us and you don't accomplish like the great things for God? Well, it feels like somehow we, we missed what God ultimately wanted for our lives, doesn't it? Now, you look at these four approaches and the reality is, is there's truth in all of these, isn't there? Like, like God does bless us. There is blessing in our lives. That obedience is a big deal. The principles in this book actually really do work. And serving God is a good thing. And it's a good thing, a part of our lives. And yet the reality is, if any one of these is the primary focus of our faith journey, that we will simply live in the shadows with our dinosaur flashlights, never truly experiencing the beautiful life that is had with God. And so today, we're going to jump right into this by looking at this first approach of the way that we relate to God as genie in a bottle. 
And maybe the best circumstance or the best story of this in the scriptures is in Luke chapter 15 with one of the most popular stories that Jesus ever told, and it's the story that is called the prodigal son. That's how we know it. Now, whether you grew up in church or not, whether you're a Christian or not, you've probably heard this story, you're familiar with this story because of the way that it's been depicted in pop culture. Like in 1980s, the Footloose, the movie Footloose was all about the prodigal son. It was built on the prodigal son. U2, the great rock band, wrote a song called Wonder. Rembrandt and Art made a whole picture called the, the coming home or the return of the prodigal son. It's this famous story about two sons, and it has two parts. And in the first part, it tells the story of a, of a younger son who basically looks at his father and says, Father, I want you to bless me as I live the way that I want to live. And in living this way, I will find my true self and my happiness in my life. It is the genie in the bottle approach. And so we're going to pick up the story in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. If you have a Bible, there, uh, Bible, you can turn there. If not, don't worry, we're going to put it on the screen for you. And as a side note, if you're here today and you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. That we as a church, uh, when it comes to the scriptures, we say that, that we read the scriptures and we live out the scriptures, that we approach these scriptures like we believe them. That everything that we do here at Crossroads really revolves out of these scriptures. And on top of that, this church is an incredibly generous church. And the last couple of weeks, we received a gift that was exceedingly generous that we were not expecting. We thought, what better way to use that gift than to buy really nice Bibles that we can give to people who don't have one. And so if you're here today and you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. And not like a dumb one, but a good one. I don't know, dumb's the wrong word. Not like one that you can use for fire, but rather one that you can, that you can take home and, and actually read. Like if you need one, you can just stop by the Welcome Center and we would love to give you one today, all right? Well, we pick up the story in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. Here's what Jesus says as he's telling this great parable, this famous parable. And he said to him, that's Jesus said to this crowd, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. That Jesus starts this story in the most shocking way ever. He says there's this dad and he has two boys, an older and a younger brother. And one day the younger brother comes to him and says, Dad, give me my inheritance. I want all that is mine. I want all that's coming to me and I want it now. Now to be sure, that the expectation that this younger son had, that one day he would get an inheritance, that one day he would share in the family's wealth, well, that was to be expected. There was nothing actually wrong with that. In Jesus' time, in Jesus' day, it was called the blessing. And what would happen is upon the father's death, the wealth of the family would be divided, that the oldest child, the oldest son, would receive a double portion than everybody else, all the other children in the family. In this case, the older brother would receive two-thirds of the wealth, the younger brother a third of the wealth. This was, this was the expectation. This is how society went. What is shocking to us, what is shocking to the original listeners that Jesus is telling the story to, is that the blessing only came when dad was dead. In essence, what the younger brother was saying is he comes to his father and he says, Dad, I want your blessing. I want your gifts. I want your things. But I don't necessarily want you. His relationship to the father was simply a means to experience the blessings that the father could offer. It was a means to, to an end of simply enjoying the, the family's wealth. And the younger brother looks at his dad as if he is rubbing 
the bottle vigorously and saying, I want what I want, give me what I desire. In 2005, Christian Smith, a sociologist from the University of North Carolina, wrote a book on the spiritual lives of teenagers. And what he discovered is that for the overwhelming majority of teenagers that he studied, that they viewed God as a divine butler, as a cos uh, cosmic therapist, as a holy genie who dispenses the blessings they desire and helps them through life's problems. When it was asked of Christian Smith why he believed that teenagers had this view of God, his answer was simple. He said, because most of their parents hold the same understanding of God. See, what Smith's study showed and what other studies have only furthered is that we are beholden to a consumeristic worldview. Listen, even the ones of us who try to live our lives as most simply as possible are still influenced by this worldview. In 1913, Henry Ford invented a way for mass production, and it set off an ability, particularly here in America, to make products at a level that was otherwise unimaginable. And what came with this invention was the need to now sell all these products, like selling all of the products that we are now able to make became paramounts. And so ads became the profit of capitalism. And we're told constantly that people with unmet needs can be appeased by goods and experiences. That consumerism defines us to the point that even just a few years ago, as we were experiencing COVID as a nation, our government looking at the very real reality of a recession gave us stimulus checks and said, go ahead, spend your way out of it. Like the reality is this is the world in which every single one of us has been influenced. 70 years ago, an economics, uh, economic professor looking at the worldview in which, in the way in which the United States was moving said this, that our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life. That we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals that we seek our spiritual satisfaction in consumption. And that is exactly what has happened. Because of our consumeristic worldview that we hold, that we are influenced by, it is no surprise that sociologists like Christian Smith have observed that we transfer that worldview into our faith journey and we see a God who primarily exists to satisfy our desires. It is the parable of the younger brother lived out in the very world in which we live in. And maybe what is most shocking when we read this story is the way that the father responds. In chapter uh, 15, verse 12, Jesus tells us, and he, that is the father, divided his property between them. He divides his property between them. This was a, a deeply uh, patriarchal society. It was a society of deference and respect. The expected response of a Middle Eastern father who had a punk kid come and say, look dad, I'm not interested in you, I'm just interested in your blessing and I want it right now, would have been, would have been met with physicality and violence. 
The expectation was to beat this kid to a place where he would never forget where his place actually was. The respect that was required of him. But the father here doesn't do anything like that. He gives the young son what he asks. He gives him his blessing. Now, in the Greek, when it comes to this word property in the English, the word there is actually bios. And bios in the Greek actually means life. Now, when you read Greek, there is a word for property. There is a Greek word for wealth, but Jesus, Jesus chooses not to use either one of those. Instead, he chooses to use the word bios. He chooses to wor- use the word life. And in doing so, he's making the point that the father is dividing his life between his sons. See, for the father, a majority of his wealth would have been in his land during this time. It wasn't like the father could just go, you know, cash a couple investments or, or give the kid cash and say, go on your way here, I bless you. No, in order to, to do what the son is asking, the father has to sell his lands. And in this time period, land was, was tied to all kinds of things in society, but chiefly, it determined your standing in the community. It distanded the amount of honor that you had in society. To lose your land was to lose a part of yourself. And the younger brother is coming and he's asking his father to tear apart his life. And the father does so because of his love for his son. It's a striking picture here of a, of a father who so patiently endures not only a tremendous amount of loss of honor, but as well as the pain of rejection as the son makes it known to him that he's really only after the blessing, not the relationship. See, for the younger son, the father carries no inherent value. And this is the common, this is common when we approach God as, as genie. That we all eventually make it to this, to this point, like everything in a consumer world, that God's value is determined by his usefulness to us. His value is, is determined by his usefulness. That a relationship with God is, is nothing more than a means to an end to achieve what it is that we desire most. Now, let me say as we talk about this, that when it comes to our Heavenly Father, when it comes to God, he certainly wants to give us blessings. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 7, he says, you go ahead and you ask, and it will be given to you. You seek and you will find knock, and it will be, the door will be open to you. Jesus says, you have something that you desire, you have something that's been laid on your heart, you go ahead and ask it, that your heavenly father, he, he delights in giving his children good things. And if you're a dad, you know what this looks like. I mean, I mean, we know. I mean, we love giving our kids good gifts. Sweet Mercy, my 11-year-old daughter, she loves chocolate. In fact, her mom did like a prison sweep of her room a couple of weeks ago, overturned everything, and she walked out with a bag of chocolate as big as me. Like, like that girl was hiding chocolate everywhere. She loves chocolate. And every time she finds out that I'm going to the store, she asks me the same question. She says, Daddy, can you give me some chocolate? And I always come back with a little piece of chocolate that she can eat fast enough before her mom finds out and lights her or me up, right? Like, like I, I love giving my kid good gifts. I love blessing my children. And God's the same way. But listen, when the blessing becomes the entirety of how we relate to him, what we ultimately end up doing is putting ourselves in the middle 
in asking God to orbit around us. And by placing all of the focus on receiving God's blessing, we behave just like the younger brother in the story. And we end up valuing God for what he can do for us, but not God himself. We simply end up valuing God for what he can do for us, but not God himself. Like, how do you know that you're treating God as a genie in the bottle? Do you only come to him when you need something? Do you only draw near when you wish for something to happen in your life? Do you only come to him when you feel like, like you're in trouble and he maybe can provide the way out? And when you ask and you don't receive the blessing, you don't receive the gift, do you get angry? See, just like the younger brother, we end up valuing God for what he can do for us, but not God himself. And in this parable, the father bears the agony of this reality, and yet he chooses to maintain his affection for his son, verse 13. Not many days later, the story goes on. The younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a faraway country. That ultimately we see in the story as Jesus is telling us is that the son only wants what the father could give him. And once he had it, the relationship was no longer necessary and so he walks away. See, the reality for every single one of us is that when we treat God as a genie, the same, very same thing happens. That we only pursue God for what he can give, and once we have it, the reality is that the relationship is no longer necessary, and so we too walk away. But the younger son gathered all he had. He took a journey from a faraway country. He walks away from the father, and there, in this faraway country, he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. The son, with, with all the gifts, all the blessings of the, of the father, squanders everything that he's been given, blessings that were meant to maintain a life of well-being far into the future, all of it gone, all of it squandered. And this is where the genie in the bottle approach always leads. That when we break our attachment from God, when we walk away, we always end up attaching ourselves to another. And that attachment will always be as a slave, not as a son. Whether it be drugs or alcohol or sex or money or a career or a spouse or a sport or a hobby or a lake house up in the mountains or whatever. When we walk away from God, we will attach ourselves to another, and in the end, we will, spend, we will end up spending our night with the pigs. Because the reality is, the truth is, is that you and I were made to be with God. And when we walk away, when we run away from him, we will take the blessings that he has given to us, and we will use them to attach ourselves to something other than God. And it won't matter if you're worth $100 billion or you are dead in the ground at Olinger's off I-25, the rest of your eternity will be pig food. 
That's the misery that Jesus describes when we, kind, when we try to live this kind of life, a life that is apart from a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Jesus continues, verse 17, but eventually the young son, he comes to himself and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. When he's literally sitting in the mud, sitting beside pigs, he is able, maybe for the first time in his life, to see clearly. He realizes the, the emptiness in himself. He realizes that, that running away from the Father with the Father's blessing started out feeling like freedom, but it ended in ultimate misery for his life. And the son, who's far away from the Father, comes to himself and he says, look how rich and generous dad is. That even his servants eat well. Even his servants eat well. And in this moment of clarity, he realizes the incredible generosity that he so foolishly gave up to pursue the pleasures of the world. And so he devises a plan. Now in Jesus' time, the rabbis taught that if you disgraced your family, then you disgraced the community that you were as good as dead to anybody that you knew from the place that you came. You were as, dead as, you were as good as dead to them. And so it was unthinkable for you to, to come back into the community. It was unthinkable for you to come back in the family. There was such great shame. But if you were willing to shoulder that shame and enter back into the community, enter in back into the family, it took way more than an apology that you had to, to make restitution for your debts. And so the younger brother, knowing this, being steeped in that kind of culture, comes up with a plan, and his plan is that he's going to go to his father and say, Father, look, I know that I'm not worthy to be in this community. I know that I'm not worthy to have a place in the family. But maybe if you'd just be willing to hire me as one of your, as one of your servants, then I can earn a wage, and I can at least pay you back. See, at some point in our lives, in treating God like a genie, we all get here. And when we do, we are tempted to make the great mistake that the younger brother makes here. Realizing that we're, that we're spending the nights with pigs, we come to clarity and, and, and wanting to once again have a relationship with the Father, we say to ourselves, there is no way that God will ever accept me because of what I've done. There's no way that our, my Heavenly Father will ever accept me because of who I am. And so we try to come back into relationship with God as a slave. And consequently, we see God as a slave master or a wage-paying employer who we can somehow pay back. I mean, come on. Is that the way? Is that what the Father desires? Is that the way that, that God wants to relate to us? Is that the mindset of our Heavenly Father? to simply see us as slaves. This younger brother, he has a plan in hand, verse 20. He arises out of the pig pen and he comes to his father and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and he ran and he embraced him and he began to kiss him. This would have been a total shock to the younger brother. I mean, Middle Eastern men, distinguished Middle Eastern men, they did not run. Women, they might run. Young men, they run. Kids, they run all the time. Distinguished men, pillars in the community, they don't run. 
But this father runs. He runs with reckless abandon to his kid. He embraces him. He kisses him. And as, he's, as all of this, as the son is taking all of this emotion in, he begins to stammer out his plan. Verse 21. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And in this moment, the father's not hearing any of it. The father is ignoring the whole plan, everything that the son has, and he shouts to his servants, verse 22, he says, come on, go bring me quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The robe is significant in the story because the robe would have been the father's robe. It was a sign from heaven shouting to everyone who is listening that this son has been restored to his family. It was the father not waiting to be paid back. It was his father not willing to see his son become a slave. Instead, the father says, look, son, I'll cover your nakedness. I'll cover your poverty. I'll cover your rags with my own robe. He shouts in excitement to his servants, verse 23, and bring out the fattened calf and kill it because we got a party going on and let us eat and let us celebrate because my son who was once dead is now alive. He was lost, he is now found and the whole house begins to celebrate. We get to the end of the first part of the story and we see so vividly that God's love and forgiveness is so great that it can pardon any sin, any wrongdoing. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't even matter if up until this point in your life that you've treated God as nothing but a genie, rubbing the bottle vigorously, waiting for him to show up in smoke so that he can grant you whatever it is that you desire. See, the, the younger brother knew that when it came to his father's house that there was abundance more blessing than, than anyone could imagine, but he also discovered in the end that there was grace to spare, that the Father's love was, was extravagant. Sky Jathani, a Christian author, says this about this story. He says, when we look at God, we may see a reflection of our own consumer selves, a divine vending machine to dispense our desires, but when God looks at us, he sees his child, created in his image, who is holy, and dearly loved. For a moment, I want you to imagine with me, I want you to imagine with me one person in your life whom you desire to come home. For whatever reason, they're gone, and there's this longing for them to be home, to see their face, to touch them, to embrace them, to kiss them. I mean, for that moment, you would be willing to do anything, wouldn't you? For, the, for that one moment to see the person that you long to come through the door of your home, that you would do anything for that moment. Listen, Jesus did not have to include this vivid emotional details of the story, but he did. Because he wants you to feel something about the way that the Father, the way that God welcomes you home. See, when we find ourselves looking at spending one more night with the pigs, we all have this moment, just like the younger brother of clarity, where we come to ourselves and there it is in the mud that we discover where it is that we came from, who it is that we are, and why it is that we exist. 
that we come up out of the shadow and we realize that running from God also includes running from ourselves. And that repentance is, is waking up to this truth, that repentance is believing that God is so great, that God is so good, that the material blessings that he gives us in this world is nothing compared to being in relationship with him. It's why the cross is such a central part of our faith. That we call this story the story of the prodigal son. And oftentimes when we are describing the story, we use prodigal, we use a synonym of prodigal that is lost to describe what's going on here. That this is the story of the lost son. In fact, in your Bible, that might even be the header, that this is the parable of the lost son, and that is fine. But do you know what prodigal actually means? The prodigal actually means, it's actually defined as, as someone who has spent everything. Prodigal means having spent everything. And in the story of the prodigal son, we have the prodigal son who receives the blessing of God, goes out in his life, and spends everything, ultimately losing himself. And at the cross, we have the prodigal God who spends everything, including his bios, his life, in order that we might be found. I mean, don't you see? Do you see the length that your heavenly Father will go to see you come home? To be able to see your face, to be able to touch and embrace you and to kiss you. Do you see the love, the extravagant love that your Father has for you? If you're here today and you want to know what a relationship with God looks like, if you're tired of simply relating to God as a genie in a bottle, rubbing, hoping to experience and, and get the desires of your heart, if that leaves you wanting and longing for more, Jesus says there's a way. And we would love to have that conversation with you. If that's you, you can text the name of Jesus to this number, 720 513-1933. Will you pray with me? Father, we, uh, maybe it's just best, Lord, that we start with a little re of repentance. Lord, realizing that at some point in all of our lives, that we have approached you in this way, that we have approached you as a genie, where we rub the bottle, you magically show up, you grant us our wishes, and when we have what we ultimately desire, the relationship, well, we just walk away. Father, the truth is, even sometimes the way that we explain faith, initially coming to you is, is with this approach that it's not so much about, about seeing you and coming to you and, and living life with you, it's as much about being saved from health. That in your goodness, in your goodness, you, you move us from seeing you just as a genie to seeing you as our heavenly father. And so, Lord, I ask that you, would, that you would move in our hearts. Lord, that you would speak to us where we're at and that you would show us the beautiful life 
that we can have in you. The beautiful life that we can have as we walk with you. The abundance of a life that we can have as we walk in relationship with you. God, make that so vividly clear to us. Open our eyes so that we can see through the shadows to see ultimately that you are the God who gave everything, including your bios, your life, so that we would come home. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We come together around communion as a family. And as we do, really it's a celebration of the prodigal God. It's the prodigal God spending his life, dividing his body, that's what we're told, right? That on the cross, that the prodigal God in Jesus, his body was broken. His life divided, his blood poured out so that we too might experience relationship with our Father, that that we would be welcomed home. And so today, we eat of the bread, remembering and celebrating the body that was broken for us. And we drink, celebrating and remembering the bios, the blood that was spilt, so that we might have life. I'm going to invite you to stand and to sing. We're going to sing of the extravagant love that God has for us. If you need prayer, I'm going to encourage you to make your way to the banner. You can pray online. You can click the button. We'll meet you there. But let's sing of the amazing love that was demonstrated to us on the cross of Jesus. Jesus.